Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again use game theory to deep dive the world of sport, this time focusing on the NFL draft. Beginning with an examination of the history and evolution of the draft, we will then move to explore what game theory can teach us about how teams should approach the hard decisions with which they are faced. So if you ever wondered why professional leagues have drafts in the first place, or what your team should do to assure they come out of the draft victorious, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. draft quickly approaching and the NBA lottery coming soon today, I want to examine sport drafts and talk about what game theory can teach us about how to approach them. But before we get into that, let's talk about what a draft is, why we have them, and how they've evolved over time. Now, according to Merriam-Webster, a draft is defined as a system whereby exclusive rights to selected players are apportioned among professional teams. But in layman's terms, a draft is a process whereby the teams in a professional sports league, one after the other, select players to play for their team. In a general standpoint, this is done to help build teams through what's considered a fair and unbiased process. In American sports, we generally have three different types of drafts. The two less talked about are expansion drafts and supplementary drafts. Expansion drafts occur when a new team is added to a league and is allowed to select from players who are already in the league but on a different team. For example, in the ever-expanding MLS in 2017, there was an expansion draft for LAFC, and the rules were as follows. There were five rounds in the draft, and each round was three minutes long. LAFC could select only from the eligible player pool, more on this in a second, and could only claim one player per team. Now, LAFC could not select any player they wanted, as I said, as teams were allowed to quote-unquote protect 11 players on their roster, and a number of other players were automatically protected, such as players that had no trade clauses in their contract, or players who were classified as homegrown or Generation Adidas players. Supplemental drafts are drafts that occur after the regular draft is held to select players who are not in the regular draft for a variety of reasons. In America, we primarily see supplemental drafts in the NFL. According to CBS Sports, quote, The supplemental draft is held every year after the regular draft in April. Its concept is based on prospects who did not enter the regular draft and want to submit their name to play in the NFL right away. The most common case occurs when a collegiate player is ruled ineligible for the upcoming season after the regular draft, which, without the supplemental draft, would leave him in limbo for an entire year. If a player wants to be included in the supplemental draft, a formal petition is needed to be filed with the league, and not every player is granted admittance. The last type of draft, though, and the one I want to focus on today, is the rookie draft. Now, This is something we have in all major professional sports across America. Every league has its own rules and format, but generally speaking, each draft has numerous rounds where teams pick from a list of qualified players sequentially, that is, one after the other. The order of the picks is typically determined by the previous year's performance, with the team 
that finished with the worst record selects first, and the team that finished with the best record and or the team that won the previous season's championship goes last. Some leagues, like the NBA, employ a system called the draft lottery, in which all teams that miss the playoffs are given a number. The worse your record is, the more numbers you get. And then, just like the million-dollar lotteries that you see on TV, ping-pong balls are used to determine who the top four picks are. And after the first four picks are selected using these ping-pong balls, the rest of the draft is just determined by reverse order of where you finished. The idea of having a rookie draft is not a modern-day conception. The first draft in professional sports can actually be traced all the way back to 1936, when the NFL became the first major professional league in America to hold one. Before this, players entering the league were free to sign with any team they wanted, which oftentimes resulted in players going to the team that paid them the most and led, as you can imagine, to a few very rich teams being able to build the best teams in football. As the NFL Hall of Fame stated, quote, Prior to the inaugural NFL draft in 1936, players were free to sign with any club. This tended to make the stronger teams even stronger and created much disparity in the NFL. On May 19, 1935, the league owners adopted a plan for a college player draft. Proposed by Brett Bell, the Eagles owner and future NFL commissioner, the plan called for teams to select players in inverse order of their finish from the previous season. Andrew Linden, a sport management scholar, described the start of the NFL draft in the following way, quote, Bell recommended that a draft of college players begin in part because a small number of teams dominated the league in its early years and the owners desired parity. Many teams in smaller markets struggled to keep up with the Goliaths, with Green Bay being the exception. On February 8, 1936, at the Ritz-Carlton in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the NFL owners held the first draft of college players, what they then called the annual selection meeting. As Bell biographer Robert Lyons described, team owners held the draft in Bell's hotel room. League and team officials have put together a list of 90 players in the weeks leading up to the draft based on media interest or haphazard scouting by team executives. NFL teams did not yet have formal scouting as they do now. The 90 players were written on a blackboard, and after each team had claimed the rights to nine potential gridiron stars, the draft concluded. Surprisingly, writes Lyons, not a word about the draft appeared in the three major Philadelphia newspapers, end quote. Other leagues soon followed suit after the NFL, as the NBA had their first draft in 1948, and the NHL had their first in 1963, and then finally, Major League Baseball had their first draft in 1965. However, the idea of a rookie player and new player draft has not caught on all over the world in all sports, as professional soccer leagues outside of America have yet to adopt the idea and probably never will. Given the way that young players come into the pros in European soccer, to make this as simple as possible, they typically come up in a youth academy and then sign contracts to play for the full club as soon as the club determines they're good enough. But because of this, a draft isn't really feasible. Remember, outside the MLS's attempt to mirror youth academies, professional sports leagues in the United States are heavily reliant on the NCAA, high school sports, and the AAU to develop their youth. Thus, no professional team has ownership of young athletes. This isn't the case in soccer around the world, as youth academies operate in lockstep with the full clubs. So if a club wants to acquire a player who's not in their youth system, the club merely goes and buys the rights to the player, and the better the player is, the more they're going to cost. This, however, leads to a problem in European soccer that a draft actually could help fix. 
The problem is the rich keep getting richer. We don't have any parity. Why? Because the rich clubs have the most money to invest into their youth academies and they have the most money to spend on acquiring players. So the best players are always going to be split between a minimum of four and a maximum of six teams. So the parity is just lacking. The same four teams are always at the top of the table. And in fact, it's a rare thing to see one of the top four clubs not win something like the Premier League. And yes, I know Leicester City won the title in 2016, but you have to consider how big of a long shot they were and how big of a deal it was. They started this season as a 5,000 to 1 long shot to win the title. So if we compare that to the NFL, imagine the best 100 players that are entering into the league being split between just the Patriots, the Rams, the Cowboys, and the Steelers. No other team would have a chance to win. What the rookie draft does in America is it allows those 100 players to be split much more evenly across all the teams. So while the rookie drafts are primarily an American invention and primarily found in American professional sports, they establish something that is lacking in sports around the world. A real hope amongst fans each year that your team could get the next great player and soon win a title. They, along with things like a salary cap, create parity and allow for the possibility of an even playing field for all. So now that we understand why we have drafts, I want to take a brief look at how drafts have changed and evolved over time, focusing specifically on the NFL draft. As we noted previously, the first NFL draft was held in 1936 in Philadelphia, and according to the NFL Hall of Fame, the draft consisted of nine rounds of selections in which teams picked in inverse order of how they finished from the previous year. In other words, the team that finished the worst picked first each round, the team that won the championship pick last. The nine rounds of the draft were immediately increased to 10 rounds the following year, and then 19 rounds in 1939, and 20 rounds in 1940, and it got all the way up to 30 rounds in 1943. While the initial goal of the draft was to establish parity in the league, as we've already discussed, Andrew Linden points out that this was hardly the outcome of the early drafts, as drafted players would oftentimes turn down the chance to play in the new league for other professional opportunities outside of sports. For example, he notes, quote, In 1941, for example, as sport historian Craig R. Cohen details, NFL teams picked 200 players from the college ranks in the draft, but only 77 of them decided to play professionally. So instead of parity, the only thing that the early draft actually accomplished was it stopped the bidding war for players that drove salaries up, and it helped keep the salaries more in check. So since the early NFL draft, wasn't having the desired effect, a new wrinkle was added in 1947 that they called the bonus pick. This pick was the first overall pick in the draft and was awarded on a rotating basis to each team in the league so that over the course of 11 years, each team, regardless of where they finish, would get a chance to draft number one. The rest of the order of the picks was determined just how it always had been by the record of the team in the previous years. This idea was short-lived, though, as after each team got one bonus pick, the idea was removed, and they just went back to establishing the draft order based off purely how you finished in the previous year. Now, the importance of the draft began to change over this time as new professional football leagues started to take shape, and as a result... There was once again a competition to sign players. This was first seen in 1940 when the first iteration of the All-American Football Conference also had a draft for players. 
Though the NFL would later join with the AAFC in 1949, the idea of competitive leagues challenging for professional football talent had been established. So when the AFL formed in 1960 and began competing for players, the NFL was seemingly ready. The draft during these years of competition with the AFL were crazy. The, as Bleacher Report noted, quote, the NFL was no longer Monopoly, and the AFL competed hard to sign NFL draft choices. The Houston Oilers signed Heisman-winning LSU quarterback Billy Cannon away from the Rams, and after a lengthy court battle, Cannon led the Oilers to the first three AFL championship games. Signing players became a futile battle. Both league drafts were held in secret on unannounced dates, and teams eventually started kidnapping players, old school style. Teams even sequestered some draftees into hotels to keep them away from the other league. And the madness stopped in 1967 when the NFL and AFL agreed to a common draft, which was the first step towards a merger in 1970. The merger of the two leagues brought with it an even greater importance to the draft. Not only was the draft a way to create quote-unquote parity, but without a league to compete with and bid up player salaries, the draft again supplied a means to control player movement and how much they were making. You have to remember at this time, there was essentially no free agency. The team that drafted you held your rights and could seemingly restrict your movements. This wouldn't change until 1987, when the players' union struck against the NFL and filed a lawsuit claiming the current system, which limited player movement, violated antitrust laws. The result of all of this was implementation of free agency for players. But back to the draft. The 1970s saw not only the increase in league size with the merger with the AFL, but also the decrease in the number of rounds in the draft to 12. This was a decrease from 17 rounds, which were held from 1966 to 1976, and that was even a decrease from 20 rounds, which was held in the early 60s. As more teams were competing to find the best players in the draft, teams began to put into place new and innovative ways of evaluating talent. You have to remember, this is a pre-internet era, so acquiring and transmitting information about college players was very difficult and was very expensive. 1963 saw the first joint agreement between teams to acquire and share information on potential draft picks, though. It was the Lions, the Eagles, and the Steelers who formed together uh, an organization called Lestro, standing for Lions, Eagles, and Steelers Talent Organization. This was later changed to Blesto when the Bears joined the group. Other similar information acquiring services popped up around the same time, and in 1977, they began putting on their own combines for players to come and show off their football skills to teams that were interested. The three major organizations at this time were Blesto, the National, and Quadra, and all of them ended up joining together in 1982 to put on the first joint combine, which really was the beginning for what we now consider the modern combine. Throughout all this time, the NFL draft was a private affair held between teams and overseen by the NFL behind closed doors. However, in 1980, as ESPN looked for programming for their innovative sports cable network, they approached the NFL about televising the draft. And though the early TV drafts were fairly boring, ESPN soon helped turn the draft into the mega event we see today. They also began to move the draft from a hotel room in Philadelphia to places like the Madison Square Garden to Radio City Music Hall. And now they've turned it into a traveling event, which takes places in massive cities all over the country, places like Philadelphia again, Chicago, Dallas, and Nashville in 2019. So that brings us up to the present day. The draft now consists of seven rounds. 
Remember, the draft was 12 rounds, and it was reduced to 8 in 1993, and then they dropped it to 7 a year later. The first three rounds of the draft are aired on primetime ESPN on Thursday and Friday night, with the first round being on Thursday night and the second and third round being on Friday. The remaining four rounds are on all-day Saturday. Just last year, the NFL Draft drew an estimated 45.8 million viewers to TV over that three-day span. And Forbes reported that the 2017 draft in Philadelphia, quote, drew 250,000 fans and 1,800 media members to Philadelphia to generate an estimated economic impact of $95 million, end quote. By all measures, then, the NFL Draft is big business for the NFL, but How do franchises approach the draft to help build competitive teams and establish the parity the draft was designed to accomplish? Well, oftentimes, we see and hear the media talk about the value of middle to late round picks who cost less and have only slightly less likelihood of making a significant impact than first rounders. Or we hear about various strategies like not drafting a running back in the first round. We see teams give up significant assets, both players and picks, to move up in the draft to get highly sought-after players or reach to take skill position players like quarterbacks, wide receivers, or running backs higher than the quote-unquote experts predict the player should go. But do these strategies pay off? Are they making the right move? Well, for the rest of the podcast, I want to dissect some of these draft strategies using the constructs of game theory to see just what might be the best way to have a successful draft. Just as a quick reminder, game theory is a study of strategic situations, and these situations involve two or more players who each have various strategies or moves that they can make. Each move each player makes impacts the outcome they and the other players in the game will receive. And as we mentioned in previous podcasts, there are many different types of games, but in general, the draft is considered a sequential finite game. This means that the players move one at a time, one after the other, and that the move of the player before you impacts the decision and moves that you can make. So for example, if the Cardinals take a quarterback with the first overall pick, that impacts the moves of the rest of the team drafting. For one, no one else can take that player. But also, it might cause a team who needs a quarterback to become scared and try to move up in the draft to make sure that they get one. The fact that this is a finite game just means that there's an end point to the game. In the NFL draft, as I mentioned, that end point is the last pick of the seventh round. I think the easiest way to dissect this game is look at the end results first and then work our way backwards. In doing this, the question is, what is the goal for the players of the game? What are they trying to get out of the draft? Well, very simply put, each team is trying to get the best players they can with each pick to try to help them win more games and eventually win the Super Bowl. The problem with this is the term best is subjective, and its meaning is highly dependent on the team doing the drafting. For example, In the upcoming 2019 draft, most draft experts have stated that Joey Bosa is the best player in the draft. He projects to be the best pro amongst all the other draftable players, meaning they think he'll have a very long and very productive career. But that doesn't mean that he is going to be the number one choice of every team in the draft because while he might be the best, he also might not be a good value to some teams. Maybe that team already has a defensive end, but they're lacking at another position. So instead of Bosa as their top potential choice, they might have a QB or an offensive lineman. So the term best is relative, and it's dependent not just on the player, but also the needs of each individual or team. 
Regardless, though, each team is trying their hardest to get the players that they determine are the best for them. If a team is able to get players that will help them win more games, then they can be said to have a successful draft. However, as we pointed out, it's not just as simple as picking the players you want for your team, as each team is competing with the 31 other teams to try to get talent, all or some of which might be trying to obtain the same players as you. So the question becomes, what tactics can a team take to try to assure that they get the players they want the most over another team? And that is where game theory can become helpful. First and foremost, game theory teaches us that information is king. The more information you have about the players in the draft and the teams that are drafting, the better. Why? Because in game theory, if we don't have information, we're more likely to make an uninformed decision that is wrong. So the more information you have in a strategic situation, the more informed you're going to be when making your decision, especially if you have information on the other players in the game. So... The first thing that we see teams doing in the draft game is gathering as much information as possible on the players who are trying to enter the draft. Teams have scouts all across the country that are watching college players play and that are talking to the college coaches to see what type of people these individuals are. Teams have investigators looking into the background of the athletes to see what type of activities they're into off the field, to learn about their past and their upbringings, to see if there's things outside of sports that might affect how they perform. Teams go to the combine every year and they go to athletes pro days to watch the individuals complete drills and to get medical information on them. They interview them and ask them sometimes crazy questions to see how they might react to stressful situations and they try to gather as much information so they can make sure that when it's time for them to make a decision, that decision is as informed as possible. In addition to this, teams should also gather information on the other players in the games, that is, the other teams that are drafting. They should look to see what positions each team is weak and strong in to try to determine what players they might be drawn to. They should assess past drafts and see if other teams have certain tendencies and certain types of players that they like. This will let me know what players might be drafted before me so I have a better idea of who's going to be available to me. Now, Teams aren't dumb. They know that information is important. And so what they oftentimes will do is they will leak things or they'll send out false flags about who they're interested in or information that they might have on players to try to throw other teams off. In this way, the ability to use the media and quote-unquote draft experts for your advantage has become an art in the NFL. We see reports all the time about how interested a team is in taking a player high in the draft. And then two days later, we see them trade away a top pick that would have almost assured them the ability to get that player to another team. So being able to tell the difference between real information and fake news has become increasingly valuable in today's 24-7 sports media environment. All this information will help the players better project what is going to happen during the draft and make them more prepared when it becomes their turn to pick. But besides gathering information, what else should teams do to try to get the upper hand in this sequential draft game? According to Joseph Stroman of Vox News, they should look to trade down. In a 2014 piece, Joseph wrote, quote, Given that teams on the whole are irrationally willing to pay a lot to trade up, smart teams can reap huge benefits by trading down. Even staying put and drafting from your original spot, the research analysis shows, is not a good strategy. 
For each pick in the first round, they, meaning individuals who have studied this, calculated all the different two-pick packages a team could have gotten by trading down based on historical data. A team with a first pick, for instance, could get a second and 182nd pick or the 14th and 15th pick or any combination of picks in between that provide the same value. Then they calculated what teams get out of these picks on average in terms of the number of starts a player provides in the first five years and the number of Pro Bowls he's voted to. Again, the data was unequivocal. On average, trading down and getting two players gave a team five more starts per season and slightly more total Pro Bowls, end quote. But trying to trade down the draft becomes a whole game within a game. So what strategies can teams take within this sequential game to try to win? First, a team can put other teams on the clock. By setting a time limit on how long the other player has to make the decision, you're doing two things. First, you're limiting their ability to acquire all the information you have. And second, you're forcing them into decision. During the first round of the draft, for example, teams have 10 minutes to make selections, and in the second round, they have 7 minutes, and then the third through seventh round, they have 5 minutes. So if you call a team right when it becomes your time to pick, instead of, let's say, the day or two before the draft, and ask if they want to trade up and acquire your pick in exchange for two picks of theirs later in the draft, you are substantially limiting their ability to gather and process information, and thus increasing the likelihood that they're going to make a bad decision and trade with you. For example, if I have the fifth pick in the draft and I call you right when it becomes my pick and offer you my fifth pick for your 20th pick and your 40th pick, you have less than 10 minutes to decide if you're going to accept the deal. That means you have less than 10 minutes to evaluate which players are available for you in the draft at pick five and compare that to the players that might be available to you at picks 20 and 40 and then determine which will be more helpful to your team. That is a lot of information to process in a very short period of time, even if you have a room full of people trying to help you make that determination. So putting people on the clock and forcing them into a decision is a great strategy to apply in any sequential game and something that we actually often see within the NFL draft. Another strategy that teams can employ to help them if they're trying to trade down and thus increase their ability to acquire more players is cutting off communication after the initial offer is made. Just as with putting the other team on the clock, game theory teaches us that cutting off communication can force the other team into making a decision without having all the information they need. By cutting off communication after the offer is made, the other team can't ask questions of you or try to counter the offer. They can either accept or reject your proposal. Since information is key as we've been stressing, keeping them from acquiring any additional information, such as why you want to make the deal, gives you the upper hand in the negotiation. So there you have it. A quick look not only at the history and evolution of the NFL draft, but also a glimpse at how the use of game theory can aid teams in accomplishing the goal of the draft. Simply put, teams need to gather as much information as possible. Not only information about the on-field performance of the athletes, but also their off-field life. They should also gather information on the other players in the game to determine what potential moves they might make and even consider putting out a false flag or two through the media to try to throw other teams off what they might do. And finally, they should try to use all that information to trade down in the draft and acquire more picks. Putting other teams on the clock or cutting off communication after the offer is made can aid them in their pursuit as this limits the other team's ability to acquire information and might force them into making a bad decision. 
Hopefully this podcast has gotten you excited for the upcoming NFL draft and made you think about it and analyze it in a slightly different way. I challenge you as you watch the draft in any other drafts this year to think about what you've learned here today and try to apply these basic elements of game theory you've learned about into what is happening. As always, if you have any questions about drafts or game theory, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the Sport Professor. Follow us as well to get updates on our weekly podcast and some behind-the-scenes footage. Until next time, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. <laughs>